What ho folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the third season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of my ongoing blog on Substack, through which I develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles. Each episode, I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. This week, the film critic Katie Duggan joins me to discuss the 1992 film The Long Day Closes, directed by Terence Davis, about his own childhood growing up in Liverpool. Here's the trailer of the film. From the acclaimed director of Distant Voices, Still Lives, comes an extraordinary new film. The memories of my childhood are as clear as yesterday. Did you have a nice time then, bud? Yeah. It's good, isn't it? I bet you went on everything, didn't you? No, oh, I tried the big wheel. Did you feel a bit sick? Yeah, I went on the waltzes. The people we used to know. <laughs> Still on the electric, Curly. Yeah, Spewder. <laughs> He's full of rhythm, though, isn't he? Yeah, like St. Vitus. You must realise I don't even know who St. Vitus is. Don't start doing those stupid bleeding impressions. <laughs> oh, he does some good, though, doesn't he? The magic of the cinema. <laughs> So? Well, if you give me 11 pence, I'd have a shilling. <laughs> You're not soft, The strangeness of familiar words. What's kind of shit, Mum? That's what? You know, in that song, we'll take a couple of kind of shit. Oh, it's kindness yet. I don't know why you thrill me like you do. I don't know why I just do. The world my brothers and my sister knew, and I so longed to be a part of. Well, did she get me stuff for me? Yeah, two pairs now, 15 then, yeah. American tab, fully fashioned. Hand stitch and nail wash. Majestic red. Yeah, imperial leather, picture goblet and picture show. Oh, God, blimey, it's golden. Oh, you little sadist! The magic that was all around me. If you shine the torch up into the night sky, the light goes on forever. Who says? Our teacher. And the mystery that was everywhere. Some of those stars are dead. The lightning never started out when Jesus was alive. The Long Day Closes. A new film by Terence Davis. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm really good. How about you, Lillian? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Um, been watching some some films, <laughs> mainly, as, <laughs> as is my want. I've just uh, just been watching um, Richard Linklater's new film, uh, Apollo Ten and a Half, which is, uh, which is rather good. I'm enjoying that a lot. Um, have you seen anything good lately? 
Um, I saw Memoria the other day, which I really liked. Yeah, I love that film. It's great. Yeah. Um, I had just, it was a, one of the first times in a while that I've gone to a press screening and it was in this weird tiny little theater in this office building in midtown Manhattan. And there was like two other people in there and it was just a strange, strange viewing conditions. But also I think that kind of sense of strangeness and (laughs) discomfort from my typical cinema conditions kind of worked with the movie. Um, And then just the, the day after I went to, um, I went out to uh, a dance thing with some of my friends and the music was so oppressively loud that my ears the next day were just ringing constantly. And that movie almost memoria made me think about maybe there's some meaning behind these strange sounds that I'm hearing and maybe it's not just hearing loss that I now have. Yeah, it's an incredible film. I also saw it in the sort of almost empty cinema um, and it, you could hear a pin drop. So when that first sort of <laughs> bang came, it was like earth shattering. It was, uh, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, it was a good one to see in a cinema, I think with, with, with the sound design of that film. I'm kind of, yeah. well, I mean, it's because it's not, it's sort of art house that it doesn't get nominated for sort of sound design awards, but I, I would definitely be my pick, I think for, for, for sound yeah. design. Um, just a, such a gorgeous film. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the people listening, um, talk a bit about sort of your your cinematic life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a tough question to answer. But um, right now, my kind of main thing that I do is, um, well, I'm the editor in chief of Film Days, which is an online publication um, dedicated to film criticism and television criticism. And um, I kind of dabble in um, all sorts of kind of areas. I would say for a while, my main area, at least of interest, if not in terms of my professional or semi-professional, whatever you call it, criticism, um, my personal interests lie a lot more in kind of horror and horror adjacent type works. Um, But I'm kind of all over the place in terms of my um, things that I cover um, for, um, for film days. Um, But then some of my kind of academic interests as well are kind of more in um, representations of um, national identity and gender within the the kind of broad genre of horror. Um, But I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard. I I wasn't expecting this to be a hard question to kind of answer my own um, kind of background and interest in film. But it's a big question. uh, So it's it's completely fair. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess kind of. Long story short, I, um, I'm kind of all over the map in terms of the, the stuff that excites me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised when you didn't pick a, a horror film for us to talk about. Um, <laughs> I was trying to but... stretch out of my typical no, comfort that's zone good. a little bit. <laughs> that, 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 that is good. Maybe if we do this again, we, we, we could do, uh, to do some British horror because there's, yeah. plen- there's, plen- there's plenty of great British horror. Um, I've done do you a- have any favourites? Oh, we've done a couple um, on this. I, I talk, uh, we've done a uh, sort of Pender's Fen, which isn't really horror, but it's sort of a, a gothic sort of film. Yeah. And then um, um, we did we did uh, the uh, Hammer Dracula with with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, so yeah. that was that was a good one to do. Um, I love The Wicker Man. Um, that's 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 probably me too. <laughs> my favorite. That and um, Ealing's Dead of Night. 
which is which is a wonderful yeah. um anthology film I, I i love those um i should also um point out that of course we 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 did our, our masters together at a university <laughs> yeah. which is uh feels like so long ago now um and yet a sort of weird fever dream of being sort of right at the the start of the pandemic and and, and sort of caught in the middle of strikes and things that re- really a lot of that was sort of we had a term where we did stuff <laughs> and then and then like it sort of um faded away after that so it's a bit of a a, a sort of constant shame I think um that we didn't get to sort of see that that through as a, as a cohort but I'm uh I'm very glad that we're able to sort of do this now and 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 talk about talk about films again um because yeah. it's been a, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really nice to catch up and also just get back into that kind of discussion mindset. Sometimes I feel like I have to remind myself, I mean, not that it was that long ago in the grand scheme of life, but it was now um a little bit of time ago that we were finishing our degree and at, sometimes I feel like um, I've stopped aging after college and then I have to remind myself oh wait no I'm, I'm 25 like time is passing um, I'm doing other things now but it's I feel like mentally sometimes I still want to return or imagine myself just being in that kind of academic context where you can just um, talk about movies all the time with people yeah definitely I mean that's partly the reason why I think I I started this podcast during during the pandemic was that it, it gives me an excuse to just talk about films um, for fun because that, that's what I enjoy doing and yeah. sometimes it can be hard to find people who sort of want to do that as well so it's it's a good way of, do, of doing that I think um, yeah. and I am so happy that you have chosen one of my top 10 films <laughs> of all time um, to, to talk about today, um, which is, of course, Terence Davis's Long Day Closes. So do you want to talk a bit about the film, why, why, why you've chosen it, what it's about, that kind of thing? Yeah, so um, I will admit when um, you reached out to me, it was a little bit of a challenge for me to try to decide which, which movie I want to talk about because there's a lot to choose from. But um, I think The Long Day Closes... Um, I don't remember the exact circumstances when I first encountered it, but I know that I, um, I watched it, I think, um, on the Criterion channel just popped up. And this was actually the, um, the only movie out of um, Terrence Davis's filmography that I've actually seen. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely um, want to dig in deeper into his um, other works. But I think what just stood out to me is that it's, well, first of all, just so aesthetically and sonically beautiful, but I just really loved, it's kind of this celebration of movie going and just the joy of just being in a movie theater and that excitement. Um, But it's also just such a beautiful coming of age story and, um, and doing a very circuitous introduction to this film. No, it's good. Um, It's it's all important (laughs) stuff. But, um, but basically, like it being in some ways kind of a, a semi-autobiographical um, portrait of um, 1950s Liverpool and this boy um, growing up and um, and going to the movies and dealing with his family life, as well as his own kind of um, first recognitions of his own homosexuality and kind of navigating his um, his world in this this post-war working class neighborhood, as well as his own kind of social interactions and 
finding his place in the world, his place within his family, his place within society. And um, even though those are all still questions that are looming in his mind and also dealing with the, um, the strictness of his school and the influence of religion, um, basically all of that is just creating this this world of uncertainty and confusion, but what he keeps returning back to is the world of the movies. And that's kind of the, this, this fantasy realm and the fiction of cinema and how that interplays with his kind of feelings about his life um, is just something that's really interesting to me. And that like interplay between um, desire and fear of that desire or this, um, tension between wanting to escape into this fantasy world as well as trying to find recognition of kind of your, your true self or seeing that reflected in whatever you're watching, whether you're interacting with, um, I think is just something that is so beautifully rendered in this film, the way that it makes that mess of internal life and memory, um, how it visualizes it, how it brings that onto the screen is just so gorgeous. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a really evocative and powerful way of describing sort of the the beauty of this film and why why it sort of resonates in that way. I think um, I first watched it during my 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 third year at university, I think. Um, second or third year. Um, when I was I was working on my dissertation on on Ealing Studios and, and representations of, of female experience sort of in post-war Britain, um, and I, I I knew that this film was sort of set during that that period, and um, I, I I'm so fascinated by the social history of that of that time, sort of especially into sort of the early 1950s. I think is a particularly fascinating time for sort of social history in 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 Britain and. I was so delighted when I started watching this film and the camera sort of goes um, into those that, that stare and you can hear Alec Guinness as, as Professor Marcus in The Lady Killers. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is, <laughs> this is like so fascinating because it's a film that I remember seeing as a child and just absolutely falling in love with it and falling in love with Alec Guinness and falling in love with Ealing Studios. Um, I have a feeling the first Ealing film I saw was was the Lavender Hill Mob. I, was, I must have been quite young. I think it was one, probably one of the first black and white um, films I'd seen um, as a child, and because it was just on the television. The other one was King Kong, <laughs> bizarrely, <laughs> but um, quite different films. But I just absolutely loved it, and I loved these films and and sort of the Ealing comedies, and then discovering later on in life, sort of um Ealing dramas and that and those sorts of things so when there are those quotations and there are those references I mean the, the lady killers is written particularly large in this one um the sort of 1955 um end of Ealing really sort of the last major success that Ealing has um after some difficulty in in, in sort of, sort of post uh, 1951 when Man in the White Suit comes out and, and films like that towards the the closure of the studios under Michael Balkan in, in um, a couple of years later. It's it's so amazing to see sort of someone experiencing these films for the first time or, or someone remembering what it was like to see these films for the first time. 
um and and to have that that family life as you say of sort of you know begging mum to let give you give you some some money to go to the pictures and and and, and see see a film like that and there's one of my favorite shots in all of cinema if not my favorite shot which is the 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 bird's eye view shot that moves yeah. over the congregation of a church into the audience of of, of a movie theater in 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 that period which i just think is as you say sort of blending this sort of ideas of religion and cinema and sort of the nature of the auditorium and the congregation and, and sort of the spiritualism of a of, of film um that this film so so perfectly captures um what's your relationship with sort of British films from that from that period from the 1950s yeah I mean um admittedly um not um not that familiar with um too many not not super well versed in kind of this this film's relationship with its time period and its history so um but I do um I, I just think it's so fascinating in the in the the shot you mentioned it as well, like that kind of bird's eye view shot is is how it's kind of aligning this idea of the um, the kind of Bud's own like church is the cinema and like his yeah. own kind of congregation where he feels comfortable. Um, kind of it, p- cutting between the the cinema and the the mass the um, and the priest leading the mass and um, is I'm also not t- really not answering your question I'm just turning it back to no um, no, no. You're you you, before, you but... are it's I, I suppose the reason why I was asking it is because um, obviously what what I was saying in sort of in terms of how I came to this film when I first watched it and sort of what what I got out of it as a sort of visualization of what going to cinema, the, the cinema, yeah. sorry, in Liverpool in the mid 1950s would have looked like and what it felt yeah. like to, to someone like Terence Davis, who is who is sort of semi autobiographically reflecting on on that time yeah. on, on, and, and his childhood. And I suppose I'm I'm sort of curious to know. Um, what 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 it's like sort of coming to this film if you, if you don't have quite so much sort of um, academic interest in in that period. Yeah, um, I mean, I do think it is, it is really interesting for me just as a viewer of this coming to it without a ton of um, kind of historical detail on the period and and not totally knowing um, all the experiences of what this would be like at this time. And then seeing this film is kind of not only um, a, a historical drama, you know, depicting what life would have been like in 1950s, but also as a memory, mm. not kind of pure history, but being filtered through like the, these are all the sensory details. These are all the kind of fragments and experiences. So in a certain way, it is kind of this window into this is what it would have been like in this time period, um, in this community, um, in in many ways, um, some of the the home sequences, the, the street sequences, the views of the cinema are relatively realistic in style. Um, but then there are those just fantasy sequences that um, that it's kind of is this interplay of like what seems kind of like the mundane sequences of everyday life, of going to school, of dealing with the, the strict um, teachers and just going through all of those routines of life, but then also finding these kind of ways in which these moments 
become beyond that, that there's these mundane moments in 1950s life that um, are so monumental in, um, in the characters as well as the filmmakers coming of age journey, that they kind of go from these routines into almost rituals that carry forward into um, his upbringing and how all these moments, just even the process of going to the movies is not just this kind of fun social thing that everyone does, even though there is there are big crowds that other people still take part in this shared experience, but perhaps don't ascribe the same level of personal and kind of spiritual significance to it in the same way that Bud does. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think it really is a sort of poetic ode to to that to that medium and and also to what to what cinema was in this period um yeah. you know it's sort of it's just after sort of in the late 1940s when cinema in, in in Britain really reached sort of the peak of its its box office appeal and you know everyone would go to the cinema and then this is sort of starting to get towards sort of the dawn of television when yeah, a lot of filmmakers and a lot of studios were were very threatened by by television and and feared that that cinema would end as a result of that, uh, which is partly partly responsible for sort of the end of Ealing um, in the nineteen fifties and some of the other major British studios. And I think that it's it's almost like a sort of dying gasp of the medium as it was as as sort of what what a picture house looked like in this period when there, you know, there was one screen that would show one film, two films. Um, you know, I think the other great film that sort of depicts that is, is um, David Lean's Brief Encounter, where you have sort of the two mm-hmm. tiers where we're going to the cinema is an event and it's, it's going, it's almost like going um, to the theatre and you have sort yeah. of the Wurlitz are coming out of the floor and the national anthem and, you know, that kind of thing and people selling chalk ices and, that that form of collective experience that was so important to people um, following the Second World War, yeah. and that 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 form of collective experience, people were sort of afraid. I think to some extent that it was going to fade away from how they'd been united during the war, but also to have that that form of escapism that it could, that, that it could offer. Um, and it is it is amazing, sort of seeing the streets that have sort of been devastated um and and the rain coming down it's very sort of poetic and and beautiful but also very very haunting and quite chilling um and I almost wonder if that's something that that Terence Davis sort of misses I mean he's making this film in in the early 90s it was released in 1992 at, at Cannes and um it's it's sort of coming when when the multiplex as as sort of the place where people go to the cinema has really sort of properly been cemented as as the standard um you know it's it's a very rare opportunity that you find a cinema now which does just have one screen um and does just show sort of one film at a time there's a there's a wonderful one in Oxford called the ultimate picture palace which I love um and there used to be an incredible one in Dublin um the Savoy Cinema, but that that's recently been turned into a multiplex. Now it's a huge single screen, and I suppose it's just not financially viable always to sort of keep 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 that that model of what a cinema looks like. So it's it's so great to be able to see sort of that being reconstructed in the way that 
that it is. Um, yeah. What? What? Is it? Yeah. I mean, I, and I think what there is something like really, really interesting and really lovely just about the way where in which it's like if there's only one film that's playing and you go at whatever time it is, just kind of submitting yourself to whatever it is going to be shown versus setting out with. I want to see this at this time or among all the choices or now, you know, watching something on TV um, or streaming it. There is something beautiful of just saying, I don't care what it is. Like he just has such a profound love um, and diverse tastes and just um, just kind of letting like giving himself over to whatever is going to be shown and finding such a joy in that, I think, um, is really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. There wasn't this sort of, you know, endless tra trailers and teasers and things. There's a, it's a form of sort of cinematic immersion that perhaps this film is sort of suggesting that that we've lost. I mean, even 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 within the last few years, and particularly sort of during the pandemic, it is it's a remarkable how sort of every film ever made almost has sort of become so readily available. And yeah, it's quite it's quite fascinating to see sort of this child who will go to the cinema and watch whatever's playing. I think that that's a a level of sort of openness that that perhaps people have have lost to some extent. I don't know. I mean, I I quite like to sort of blindly choose a film to watch at yeah. times and just sort of go where my instincts take me. But I I suppose there is that sort of it's it's not something that perhaps c cinema is sort of a a form of sort of going out <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have it doesn't have the same same nature to it and may maybe that's a positive thing i mean there's there, surely there's there'd be nothing worse than showing up to the, the cinema and watching something absolutely dreadful um <laughs> you know could you imagine going to the cinema and finding that the only film that they were showing was morbius and and, and, have, <laughs> and have it, having to sit through that um, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I think one of the only um, I'm kind of thinking about this on um, in multiple ways um, in relation to the long day closes. But I guess like in my experience, sometimes the closest thing I would come to kind of having something just chosen for me, kind of going with whatever is playing is that I think um a formative part of my own kind of relationship with movies is that very often watching um, when I was younger, um, my, my mom is really um, into movies and she is, um, she has a much more kind of historical approach and historical knowledge of all the different studio systems and all the different actors. Um, anytime um, we kind of have a, um, a running bit that every time I would watch something in, in a film class or if I was doing anything um, during my degree, I would talk to her after kind of unpacking what I had just watched. And of course she's seen it. Of course she knows all the details and knows all the actors. Um, but um, she and I um, would pretty often and still whenever I'm home, um, just put on um, like Turner Classic Movies or one of those other channels um, and just kind of roll with whatever they're showing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she's also part of the reason why um, I like she she really loves some of the um, golden age Hollywood movies and especially um, movie musicals as well. 
Um, and that was something that um, struck me with the long gate closes, just the use of different um, different songs from um, mm. Hollywood musicals um, and kind of how those would just flow into um, some of the scenes, like um, in like the one um, there was the one scene that I think really really stands out to me is um, when Bud is. Um, it's kind of that silhouetted scene where he sees his brother and his brother's girlfriend. Um, and it's kind of, instead of actually hearing them talk, they're just kind of silhouetted. And then it's accompanied by a clip of, or the sound from um, Meet Me in St. Louis and yeah. Judy Garland <laughs> singing um, Over the Bannister. And that's kind of like the this romantic song from this musical is is what provides the the dialogue and the score to this kind of viewing of this romantic encounter and everything is kind of filtered through these these films that he's seen and these kind of heightened views of emotion um from these musicals and then there's also even the um the the over the overhead shot of the church and the cinema has the Debbie Reynolds song and she's singing. Um, and I just think it's such an interesting um, kind of recurring thread is um, in addition to the, the love of the images and um, is also the love of this music and this sound that kind of is recurring and really sticks with him and sticks with the audience as well, that it's providing this constant kind of commentary and soundtrack to, um, to these various memories and moments. Yeah, the music is so, so powerful. And um, it's, it's very much sort of Terence Davis's style is to sort of pull from all these, these, these things and sort of create almost like a, a musical collage. I often refer to his films as sort of being like an operetta. Um, yeah. It's almost more the case with um, Distant Voices Still Lives, his, his film sort of um, prior to this, which is, which is, I mean, if you love this film, you will love Distant Voices Still Lives. They're very, <laughs> very similar films. Um, that one has a lot of sort of old music hall songs, um, sort of um, Cockney sort of British British songs that are being performed like in a pub, sort of everyone sitting around and having a sing song um, to incredibly powerful effect. Whereas, as you say, with this film, it's more... It's more on the soundtrack, but it's it's also sort of weaves in and out. You know, you do have characters singing singing the songs as well. Um, yeah, in those incredible, incredibly beautiful moments. Um, you know, and 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 sort of everything from, as you say, Hollywood musicals to British music hall to traditional songs like Old Lang Syne, um, yeah. which has one of the best lines, that one of the best jokes in the film, which is about sort of. <laughs> um, mistaking kindness yeah. kindness yet to um kind of shit um which is which is brilliant um, <laughs> and and the, the the song that it's named after by Arthur Sullivan which plays at the end when mm-hmm. you have this incredible sort of long take of of the night sky and the moon and 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 you know the it is this sort of ode to a, something which is passing um that sort of coming of age requires time to sort of times in life to sort of fade away and change and that this is a snapshot of a moment in Davis's life and in British history that that doesn't come again um which is which is very sad but also positive and it's (laughs) it's this very strange sort of 
um, melancholic way of looking at, at how a childhood and I think one of the main things that sort of draws draws us to this film, particularly for for the topic of this of this podcast and talking about sort of queerness and and female representation as well within 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 British films, is that by making this film in 1992, which is sort of at the peak of like Derek Jarman's career and and um, and sort of queer cinematic movement in Britain, is that you can look at this period with a refreshing honesty about queerness and, mm-hmm. and, and homosexuality in a way that is touched on. I mean, there, there, I, I, I've talked on the podcast a few times about films that I, I find absolutely fascinating. You know, most of the men at Ealing Studios were gay. Um, a lot of the actors were, a lot of the directors were, um, especially Robert Hamer and Dennis, Dennis Price making Kind Hearts and Coronets. I mean, that film is just absolutely seeped in camp. It's it's glorious. Um, but it's also really tragic. And 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 the the extent to which sort of you have to hide these things away. Um and 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 the the impact that had on those men sort of um attempting suicide and 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 um falling into alcoholism these sorts of things it's, it's, it's incredibly sad stories that sort of comes out of that before Basil Dearden sort of is a, is apart from Ealing and is able to make victim in 1961 and we get these this sort of changing of change in approach in the 60s prior uh, prior to and, and immediately after sort of the, the legalization of, of homosexuality in, in 67 um and this is a so this, it's, it's it's so fascinating to see this film being made sort of post Thatcher um and 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 sort of the 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 real homophobia that existed in Britain at that time looking back at this period and saying no 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 you know queerness didn't not exist it's just not shown in those films and sort of using films like the lady killers which again is incredibly camp film um yeah <laughs> and with, with this sort of um play between between the male characters and, and and so on and 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 how he sort of is able to reflect on you know the fact that well of course gay people existed in the 1950s they just weren't on screen at that time um and it's yeah. interesting as you say the sort of the sort of films that that he would have connected with and Terence Davis has sort of used this in, in in all of his films and and um has made adaptations of things like Terence Rattigan's um Deep Blue Sea Rattigan again uh, sort of prominent um gay man in 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 Britain during that period and it's it's and and his recent most recent film Benediction um which I believe is coming out next month either end of later this month or next month um all about Siegfried Sassoon which is which is just as gorgeous and and a real sort of return to this mode of filmmaking I think in in sort of the the taking a poet as a subject and making a poetic mm-hmm. film about them is just so beautiful. It feels like a film that 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 would have been made sort of in, in this <laughs> era rather than rather than perhaps one that would get made today. And it's it's just gorgeous for all those the same reasons that we've been talking about. Um, how did you feel sort of about that that that's the sort of the level of queerness in the film and and sort of the way that it that it's presented within the long day closes. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that's interesting about it is that it's kind of this this desire that's never fully articulated. It's never kind of fully brought up 
to the the surface or kind of the the conversations um, quite so much, but it's still always there. This kind of recognition from our protagonist um, that he's feeling like he's in this process of questioning, that he's feeling different, um, that he's trying to kind of navigate this um, religious upbringing that he's dealing with, um, as well as his kind of um, friendships and relationship with his family members. And I think um, that's part of why I find it really fascinating is that it's it's never or, or rarely throughout the film kind of fully um, like heavy handed in its approach or anything like that. But it's still um, it's still very much there that he's always in this um, like the the queer themes are coming through just through his through his kind of desires and his questioning and his constant kind of um, even just in his glances, always looking around him, always observing other people, whether that's kind of watching his um, his siblings or other kind of romantic um, heterosexual couples, just walk, watching them um, go, get dressed and do their hair and get ready to go to a dance um, and observing some of those interactions um, are, as well as there's there are some moments where, again, it's never quite fully um like we we never hear him fully expressing his desires or kind of saying things out loud but we can even just read things in his face like when he is observing um he's observing a bricklayer and it's kind of just his his gaze lingers on this man um who is who's laying these bricks outside or um and i just find it really interesting too how we see um we see Bud kind of navigating these different gendered spaces where um, so much of it is kind of um, segregated between the, the school that he's at that's full of boys, but then in some of his social spaces, we see him most often with um, his mother or with his sister, um, really enjoying spending time with them and having these close bonds with some of the women in his life mm-hmm. um, and just kind of trying to to figure out where he belongs in relation to these spaces that seem like they're very much um, divided um, Mm. is something that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, And also sort of the alignment with with his gaze that there's the, the, you know, the sort of very dashing looking uh, workman who he sort of uh, claps eyes on (laughs) out of of his window. And, you know, he is sort of fascinated by by men as a sort of it's a male gaze but it's a homosexual male gaze that that exists in in this film which I think is is quite refreshing <laughs> compared yeah. to a lot of films sort of and a, and a lot of the films as you say that are sort of being made uh particularly in Hollywood that he's sort of seeing and and, and things like meet me instantly and, and, and so on um and it is it's a queerness as sort of an aesthetic and as a sensibility rather than you know, there's no, there's nothing explicit in, yeah. in, in, in the film. It's, it's, it's not, it's not queer cinema in the sense of um, sort of what, what I suppose a lot of people think of as, 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 as gay cinema is, is sort of, you know, you need to have some, some fairly raw sex scenes in there, um, <laughs> which, which seems to be the way that a lot of sort of fairly recent um, uh, queer cinema has has gone to sort of 
you know, quite rightly so, to sort of subvert the 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 overwhelming presence of um, of heterosexual activity in 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 film. But it is it's also very refreshing to watch films that just have that sort of sensibility to them and the way that we yeah. when we're watching them how we can feel that and how we feel the way that he looks and experiences and 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 as you say is discovering um this aspect within himself and we're watching that which is which is very beautiful to watch I think um and it's in also the other thing that you were talking about about sort of the relationships that he has with 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 women and, and particularly the women in his family and his mother and that's something that that very much comes across in Davis's films is 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 you know in in distant voices still lives Pete Postlethwaite plays a father figure who's absolutely horrible it's horrendous to watch so the sort of mother son bond that he has is so precious and so beautifully portrayed in this film and the and the way that he interacts with her um, particularly when you know there isn't a father present as indeed there wouldn't have been for for many families um, after the Second World War and the way that he sort of looks up to his siblings to, to yeah. fill a certain level of parental absence that, that, that he perhaps is, is, is feeling within this family and, and um, sort of, you know, he gets on very well with, with his sisters and, and enjoys sort of performing with them very much in the yeah. same same vein as sort of in, in Meet Me and St. Louis when they 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 sing together and, and and sort of put on a show for people. It's um it's so beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's it's it's, it's, so, it's quite difficult to just not be like, isn't this just a gorgeous film? <laughs> yeah. it, this this film really warrants us gushing over it because it's just so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, well, so what did, what did you sort of make of, of his relationships with, with, with the women and, and sort of the representation of the female characters? Yeah, I mean, I think it is so kind of just such a lovely mother-son bond, like such a, such a caring bond. Um, and I think even though um, like them, um, just the mother kind of having this understanding of even if she's not kind of it doesn't get to the explicit point of she's understanding his sexuality she's understanding those um aspects of who he is um even just that kind of immediate understanding of like where is he he's at the movies where else so that's almost like I read it as this moment of like she she gets him like mm -hmm. she she really understands what he loves and what he is how he wants to spend his time and like she, she just understands his his love of the movies even if she doesn't always um share it or she is kind of like doing her her thing in the domestic realm and giving him the money to go off um and spend his time at the cinema that um she understands him um, and they just have so many, um, so many moments of just this, this bonding where um, they're spending time together, where um, she is kind of taking care of him if he, he has a nightmare of, um, and she, and he runs to her for comfort, right. um, or she's, um, she's singing to him, mm -hmm. um, I think is just such a, such a strong bond that she it, in comparison to some of the um the strict figures at school um you know the the priests or some, or some of the strict 
um, nurses or just any of the, or the teachers that are all pretty, pretty harsh. Um, and, um, and there's one, I think it was maybe, maybe the nurse or one of the doctors um, who's kind of assessing all the boys that they all have lice and is saying they're all, they're all so dirty and they're like wretched creatures. But then his, his family, they understand him like his, all his siblings they they don't see him as something like that they they just find joy in this shared experience of of singing and um and kind of create their own little fantasy realm of all these songs that they know and all these fragments kind of piecing together their own um own ways of understanding one another I just I I really really enjoyed just seeing this this the sweetness of um, of the bond between the mother and son, even though there are moments of, of terror in this process of coming of age, and there are, kind of, whether it be dreams or harsh experiences in school or other um, moments of unpleasantness or shock, there is still this feeling of, of care in the home realm um, and this, this closeness of the family. Yeah, definitely. And the way he sort of pays attention to the work that his mother has to do. I don't think that's ever really sort of understated in the film is just the sheer amount that she has to do and has, you know, and still has time to sort of host these parties and, 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 yeah. and be sort of a character full of life. It's such a beautiful sort of memory of his mother that that she was able to do sort of everything and that she very much was sort of the head of the household and was able to, to manage a house like that where when they, when they didn't have much money and, and still, still a lot, and still Bud was able to sort of go to the cinema very often and all these things, you know, that she does seem to be sort of um, at least very much in his eyes sort of the uh, the perfect post-war mother of, of sort of the the, yeah. the the housewife who can do everything who can who can play the role of both father and mother in sort of in a Britain where many father figures hadn't sort of returned from the war and, and everyone had to just sort of carry on afterwards um I think the 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 attention to detail in that is very beautiful like the way that she sort of cleans a kettle or um yeah. prepares meals and, and and those sorts of those shots where he's he's watching her and sort of almost wistfully wishing that he had done more to support or help her perhaps there's a certain sense you know there's there's very much the sense that there's a lot of joy and celebration but there's also a sense that he might have missed out on some things or not done everything that he could or perhaps should have or feels that he should have done um that there is there are moments of regret in the film as well mm -hmm. um not least perhaps in in sort of the lack of queer role models or representation that he would have seen um yeah. you know one of the things that I, I suppose a lot of my research looks into and what, what I've been so fascinated by is what it would have been like for a woman in this era, era um, particularly sort of a, a single mother housewife to go to the cinema and to watch a film by Ealing or Powell and Pressburg or whatever it is and, and what they would have felt 
watching that. I mean, and that's such a difficult thing to study because there aren't many sort of first-hand accounts left that sort of show what that was like. So it's so powerful to see a film like this for me of what, what, what films from that era he would have related to as a child and felt represented by because when when you're not explicitly represented in film or any medium you look to other things that sort of aren't necessarily explicitly representational but have that sort of have something that you can connect to more so than perhaps um other things and I think it is interesting that it is things like like Ealing and Hollywood musicals that that he sort of saw himself in to some extent and again that comes from an aesthetic and a sensibility that those films create that feel like a sort of almost a a world of sort of endless possibility and open-mindedness where people can be themselves and people can just sort of you know express themselves in ways that you know everyone else is sort of quite restrained whereas when you when when you watch I don't know Judy Garland burst into song to express her feelings you know that that, that's that's a form of of sort of escapism and and an outlet for emotions that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to show um, and many of us aren't able to show uh, sort of in in day-to-day life that the cinema is a place where you can do that and you can sort of live your life through what you're seeing on the screen yeah yeah I mean I think that that is like so much of um this film is really about that kind of at sometimes like the, the the pleasure of being able to live vicariously through these stories you're you're seeing um as well as at times it's almost like it's it's a necessity that these characters aren't able to um put into reality or into practice like whether like expressing verbally how they're feeling or like the mother um kind of having this um domestic realm that she inhabits but then like how how much of um how much of that does she get to escape outside of the realm of um, entertainment that um, this this ability to um, to escape into the fictional world is kind of what these characters need and I think it's so interesting too like um, just to keep returning again to that like that beautiful aerial shot of the the cinema to church um, to like Bud kind of swinging and being on his own like that that is accompanied by uh, like what might initially seem like it's kind of a a strange song like the the Debbie Reynolds song Tammy where Mm. she's kind of singing about about love and whether her lover can hear her or kind of share these same feelings and it's this this character who's kind of expressing her own desires and expressing that desire for the person that she loves to feel the same way and to kind of recognize her own desire and and know what she's feeling and and feel the same way and so even though you know we don't have these characters saying these things explicitly or like overtly asking um to love or be loved even just in the choice of the, the, the pairing of the song with some of these images and kind of putting it into our heads as viewers, these, these ideas of the, the musicals are um, like, the characters in the musicals are singing what cannot be said. 
um, because the emotion is too great. And for the characters in The Long Day Closes, they they use these songs as a way to express the emotions that they can't even express for themselves. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's so amazing that how, just how much music there is in such a short film. Yeah. Um, I think there's 35 different pieces of music. But they're, <laughs> they're played almost in like compl- their full length. And the film yeah. is what, 85 minutes long? Um, it's, it's a real sort of movement through a period and to create sort of this this amazing like <laughs> artifact that sort of pulls all of these things together you know the the opening of the film is is um, um boccherini's minuet from um that's that's used very famously in the lady killers and the, sort of the piece that they play and immediately that piece at least for me certainly and i'm sure for many people it immediately is evocative of that film and the sheer sort of escapist joy of it but also it's it's a fascinating film because it 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 represents sort of where Britain was at that time and there's this the the sort of cul-de-sac where Mrs Wilberforce lives is this is this there's all these houses that have sort of been flattened by bombs that still haven't been reconstructed at the end of the street almost standing on its own sort of and this is in the screenplay it's the way that the street the, the street is described is that the house is sort of this last bastion of, of, mm-hmm. of Britain and the Mrs. Wilberforce is that person that she represents sort of the British spirit that when faced with, with sort of these evil figures, she's the one who sort of is able to, 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 to keep standing and, and not um, to not bow to the pressure of these, of these men that, that are staying in her house and sort of try to carry out this, this hilariously elaborate robbery um you know it's a, it's a, it's a nuance that perhaps the Cohen brothers missed when they remade it <laughs> um although I, I I'm not I'm not as big a hater of the Cohen brothers lady killers as, as most people are um because I think I think it does have there is an in there is a level of interesting sort of use of that story to make a comment on sort of um of, of, of sort of race relations in America, um, even if it's not particularly well done. I don't think that you, you didn't get many um, sort of fart jokes in, in Ealing's films as, as, <laughs> as, as you do as you do in, in that film. Um, but yeah, it's, oh, I, just, I just love it. I just love it. And the use of the use of hymns as well, like, um, yeah. which is the wind southerly and, and as I said earlier long day closes you know it's not it's not just sort of these these very very popular films uh, films songs but but like songs from films is what I was trying to say but also like just all the different sounds that he would have heard as a child it's a sort of soundtrack of of, of all of the different sensory experiences that he had it's a very sensory yeah. film which is probably why I love it because I love I love sort of you know haptics in cinema and sort of something that's very tangible and it create it creates I don't believe that we can sort of you know in t- it's, it's entirely the best practice to try to sort of 
say that we can purely relate to things that happened in the past because obviously there's a certain level of yeah. that we don't have but, but for someone to be creating this having experienced it it does feel like a sort of window into a into a period of time that you could you can get through watching films from this period of course um and that's very much sort of what I did at university and what I I, I hope to sort of be able to continue to research um one day <laughs> fingers crossed if I eventually get <laughs> PhD funding from somewhere <laughs> um, <laughs> side note um but to, to sort of look at those films and, and and see the extent to which they're sort of holding a mirror up to to contemporary Britain but equally it's fascinating to watch a film that is is reflective in this way um and is recreative as well that you know this isn't these are sort of created sets and costumes you know it's 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 modern people yeah. playing people from the past rather than watching sort of contemporary figures play 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 versions of themselves but yeah I, su I suppose also that what's so so brilliant about that is that there's not a real sort of star quality to a lot of the people in the film that it's these do feel like real people um yeah. which which you get with a lot of Terence Davis's films I think is that you don't need sort of no one's chewing the scenery yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone is sort of it's very subdued it does it does feel like you're watching real people living a real life rather than yeah actors on a on a film set even though the film is so heavily stylized you know it's the yeah it's the complete it's the extreme opposite of minimalism it's it's sort of <laughs> it's very lavish and very beautifully constructed and there's constantly some form of interesting cinematic device or yeah. some interesting form of cinematography going on whether the way the cameras move and, you know we've talked about some of the, the incredible shots in the film but the is literally incredible shot after incredible shot it's like every shot is an absolute banger um yeah that's that could be exhausting I think <laughs> and yet it still maintains that sense of realism and naturalism that that makes it so powerful yeah like I, I think it's so interesting that there's some moments that are like it it opens there's certain shots where like it's dark and then it becomes sort of a tableau of the family and then it kind of comes to life so it's almost as if we're looking at like a, a play or something that's that but, or that we're just observing some of these moments as if in, in the mind of bud he's like imagining his daily life playing out like a work of fiction um but i think exactly as you said that even though it is so heavily stylized the the performances are so um kind of naturalistic and so um it, it really feels raw and real in terms of the emotions that we're seeing that we don't just feel like we're watching these characters that we're seeing these like snippets of of real life even as they're um blended together with these very um theatrical or or stylized um kind of storytelling devices yeah, and I think it's a really great way of sort of capturing nostalgia without sort of being yeah. overly sentimental. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I said at the start of this, I've been watching uh, 
Richard Linklater's new film, uh, Apollo 10 and a Half, that, that that is basically doing the same thing, but through rotoscope and through animation, where you can sort of, again, it's sort of a, a depiction of childhood with, with, with sort of 60s music and, and of what it would what sort of what it would be like to grow up in sort of the late 60s during the space race in, in Houston and, and and the the sort of cultural experiences that come with that um yeah. I think it's just a really gorgeous way of looking at of being reflexive in that way and and, and yeah. think and thinking about um those experiences and of what childhood it's like it's such a I think that the coming of age film as a genre is absolutely, as you, you know, sort of um, is is about nostalgia and capturing a period in time, and uh, sometimes that can be sort of something like Stranger Things, which is almost mm-hmm. like a faux version, where it's like, look at this thing, don't you remember that? <laughs> or like, you know, having to state everything explicitly in case people don't always know what it's talking about. I mean, it's entirely yeah. possible that you could watch the long day closes without knowing what any of the references are to. Um, but that doesn't matter because they are evocative of yeah. the themes and emotions that 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 Terence Davis wants the yeah. audience to feel. Um and that's something that he's been able to do in sort of, and, and, and he's navigated a number of different genres. You know, he's he's done sort of semi-autobiographical stuff. He's also done biographical um, films like Quiet Passion and Benediction, as I said, and um, and 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 sort of literary adaptations, things like uh, House of Murph and and Sunset Song. So he, he has had this sort of very diverse career, but his films always have this similar sort of sensibility to them that I just find so moving and so powerful um in the same way that I think of the films of my other favorite Terence um Terence Malick um albeit spelt differently I always forget which one has <laughs> I always forget which one has one r and which one has two r's um and um and and to some extent sort of the films of, of Michael Powell and and and, and Pressburger and sort of the, the idea of the composed film that Michael Powell wrote about, which is the idea that sort of all of the artistic components of the film should work together to produce mm-hmm. something similar to an opera, really, where you have sort of sound, um, image, and um, and 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 sort of the acting all working together to create something that is a whole work of art in in a sort of Wagner Gesamtkunstwerk kind of kind of way um and I feel like that's not a mode of filmmaking that many directors maintain now particularly in British in British cinema it's very much been a sort of move towards um realism and minimalism and low budgets Mm -hmm. rather than something that that almost does feel like a musical um, which is a genre that Britain sort of famously hasn't done very well at. I mean, there's, <laughs> there, there, there's, there, there's, there's jokes in the souvenir and souvenir part two about that, where uh, <laughs> Richard Iowadi's character is sort of trying to direct a, a, a musical, which is a sort of parody of, or pastiche rather of um, absolute beginners and, and sort of would famously didn't do very well. And Michael Powell's sort of attempts to make 
opera films that that didn't perhaps resonate with with audiences things like um oh rosalinda and, and tales of hoffman so it's um although of course the films come back round again but at the, t- at the time they don't perform as well as as sort of other other modes of filmmaking so i think it's it's quite special when there is a british film that sort of uses I don't want to say like conventional Hollywood devices, but I suppose they are to some extent. There's sort of, there are <laughs> moments in this film which are shot and feel like and designed like a Hollywood, a golden age Hollywood musical. And mm-hmm. yet it's moving through a street in Liverpool or through yeah. the, the house or through um, a church or a movie theater or a school, as, as, as we've, we've yeah. said. And it's like, what a fascinating way to look at something to sort of open yeah. up the cinematic space like that rather than just sort of keeping the camera still and I think there's a place for that of course it's plenty yeah. of my plenty of my favorite films are sort of very very sort of static films but it's amazing to see sort of these these techniques that we would perhaps associate with other genres and other types of film yeah. being used being used in, being used here yeah um something else i'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on as well which we've touched on but haven't really delved into so much is like just the the role of religion throughout this film Mm -hmm. and kind of the the spectacle of some of the scenes in church and like um his visions of there's the one scene where he kind of has a vision of, of Jesus being nailed to the cross, mm. like in that kind of nightmare dream sequence situation. Yeah, it's, um, sort, of, it's sort of like um, the beginning of Persona, where, where the sort of the yeah. hand is having the nail pushed through it. It's this very sort of, it, it really hits you and sort of comes in this very abstract way. Um, yeah, it's a incredible scene sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but I I just like I think it's it's so interesting too because even with like religion is is another kind of thing that's always Mm. present um throughout the film and especially when he's in school um or is going to church services and singing hymns but it's also it's not quite so much over in the sense of the family members talking about their, their faith or lack thereof, their own spiritual beliefs or anything like that. It's almost like the um, it's just kind of the, the historical Mm. context and the backdrop that he is just in this school with these strict religious authority figures. But at the same time, he's kind of navigating this relationship where he's kind of confessing to Jesus and begging for, forgiveness and begging for love too which Mm. is just so interesting too just the way way he phrases it that he's declaring that he's going to love Jesus and is asking for that love in return and is begging to be forgiven um I just Mm. find that the religion element is is something that you know it does very much immerse me in the historical moment and the context Mm. but also just feels like interesting insight into into the character and his own kind of that navigation of the the externally imposed religious authority and kind of going through those those rituals of church but then his own personal relationship with his religion and um right and wrong and how Mm -hmm. he is kind of 
dealing with his own desires and fears of judgment. Yes, it's really interesting. And and sort of the change in religion after the Second World War in, in Britain is so fascinating and sort of the move towards secularism and sort of a, a sense of godlessness, I think, is so interesting. And it's also interesting that sort of the the, the rituals of, of Christianity are sort of so, so much more sort of omnipresent in, in society than they, they are now. Um, that atheism, as it were, isn't sort of an option really, is that... Um, and I think it is interesting that sort of because of that upbringing that, that he sort of, the things he's seen and heard and sort of been taught that he, he does feel a sense of guilt, that there is, there is a sort of a, a queer guilt, which is something that, that, you know, isn't exclusive to that time period and, and, and continues and very much is still sort of present. Um, and I think what's, that's why it's so interesting sort of watching Terence Davis's other films, and particularly in sort of in Benediction and the way that Sassoon, Sassoon sort of loses his faith, as it were, through that sense of godlessness, through living through war and conflict and um, dealing with a society that isn't accepting of his sexuality per se. Um, what's interesting about that fil- film is that Sassoon sort of is, is, is existing within sort of more upper class circles where homosexuality isn't discussed, but it's very much sort of a blind eye is taken to it, but there are certain privileges that are allowed of, of you know, sort of sneaking away to, to, to the, and there is a queer community in within that. Whereas in a working class setting, like, like this film, that's not something that, people would perhaps know how to find or would even be aware of or, or attuned to um, necessarily. I mean, it's difficult, of course, because Bud's at, at an age where he, you know, he's not, he's not sexually active <laughs> within mm-hmm. this film. Um, so, so perhaps a sort of later in life sequel would, would explore that a bit more and how sort of that sense of, of community and finding other queer people would have taken place. Um, But certainly not perhaps within the church itself. And, but I do still think that there is this spiritualism to it, you know, it's sort of on the surface of it. Yes. It's sort of suggesting that cinema is like a religion and you know the, the sort of obvi- the very obvious comparison between sort of the auditorium and the congregation but also the fact that there is a sort of spirituality to it that and how that spirituality is sort of pertinent and and, and evocative for him regardless of whether or not there's a sort of a god involved um and yeah I don't know it's difficult (laughs) it's difficult to know because because the religion is such a complex topic for Davis I think and for a lot of film British filmmakers it's something I find very interesting that sort of 
there's an assumption that everyone will go to church and everyone will sort of be a Christian, but there isn't necessarily a sense that people truly believe in it or believe in yeah. God. That the, the, the community of the church is what is is worth is worthy of itself because of that community and the community within this period is so tied to it and tied to the church that, yeah. that actually the religious aspect sort of beyond the ceremony isn't as important as whether or not you actually believe in God which I think it has perhaps more become since then because the church isn't so much certainly within an urban setting like Liverpool yeah. or, or any other British city it's not society and community doesn't rest on the church as much as perhaps it used to I mean I think it, I think it still does to a large extent in sort of more rural areas um but 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 not necessarily in 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 urban areas where there are other channels of, of sort of forming those communities yeah and I yeah I just think it's like it's really interesting like the 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 Catholicism kind of is ne- is like I just feel like like my I kind of grew up vaguely Catholic and mm. it's such like a a religion that feels inherently very like kind of campy and it's all built on the the show and of and the displays of um you know like like most religions but very much built on the like elaborate garb that the that the clergy wear and um the just the the performance of the church ceremonies um like there is that kind of like element to it where it is almost like you're you're going to see this this little show and like you said that you know even if if it's not really based in this um dedication to god and to the the religious scriptural elements it's this kind of thing that you do because that's kind of the ex- the expectation that it's kind of part of the framework of society um right. is to be a member of, of some church and go through some of those motions um but i think it is interesting the ways in which like we see this kind of vague figure of the the church and the um the religious authority that imposes and this idea of kind of like Catholic guilt and questioning giving way to his queer guilt and feeling like, where is this coming from? These feelings that I'm experiencing, is this a spiritual crisis? Is it a sexual crisis? Mm-hmm. Like, where can I locate this, um, this feeling of uncertainty that I have? Should I tie it to Jesus? And then Jesus and this, this desire for love from Jesus, like is kind of, he doesn't know in certain ways where else to, to place um, that those feelings that he's experiencing. So he looks to Jesus to kind of help him navigate these feelings in a really interesting way. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> it's, there's so, so much complexity to sort of the, the themes and the narrative of the film um, that, you know, I feel, I, I, I feel like, We've 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 talked a lot about it. <laughs> we've sort of gone quite in depth, and yet and yet the surface has sort of scarcely been scratched. There's so many, so many very clever um, forms of referencing and and real subtlety. I think is the real sort of thing that's come out of discussing it. Is is just yeah. how everything that we're reading in this film is sort of, you know, it's definitely there, but it's not. 
you again you could quite easily watch this film and not not spot it um which is why I think it's it's a film that I love revisiting um and noticing things that I hadn't noticed the first time I watched it um particularly as sort of my interest in in cinema grows and and uh, and and to experience more things from that period and I'll be watching it and I'll think oh right that's what that is or um, <laughs> you know recognize a sound clip or something that I hadn't necessarily recognized the first time round. um yeah it's it's special and I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm very very grateful that you you chose it for us to to discuss yeah um, yeah are there and is there anything else that you you're particularly keen to sort of talk about on this <laughs> on this on this subject or or, or yeah. indeed on uh, the British cinema and, and I don't know it's it's, it, I... it, it, it's queer existential crisis <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um I was so glad to be able to talk to you about this one because I I knew that it was one that you liked too so mm-hmm. I wanted to I knew we'd have a lot to talk about Absolutely. I'm always, I like, I like it when guests pick things that I've never seen before. And I, I also love it when, when guests sort of pander to my taste and, and choose things <laughs> that I, I, I absolutely love. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. That was great. Yeah. This is so fun. Just to be able to talk about movies in general and this movie in particular. It's such a joy. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft, with three L's in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify and Apple, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is... Thank you for listening and toodle pip.